Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Able, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, clarify your message, and make an impact on the world. This episode is brought to you by the phrase, defining success. Of course, it was nigh on impossible for me to find a simple definition of defining success because it is so highly subjective and personal. It's also one of my favorite topics for that reason, because it's so easy for us, myself included, to get tripped up and self-sabotage around definitions of success when we're in process and navigating the messy middle, which is why I want you to be prepared to be inspired by my guest, my dear friend, Carrie Muzzy, who made one of the most amazing career pivots and is now a film and modern classical music composer. You've totally heard one of his most charming pieces, Looking Back, which was used as the recurring love theme on Glee for Rachel and Finn and Will and Emma. And we're going to talk about all of it. Carrie, come on down. Hello, it's so nice to be here. It's good to see you. It's good to see you via video portal. Hi. I'm excited to talk about this stuff. I really am. We have kind of a similar storyline in that we both left the safety and security of like the corporate TV world and struck out. And there's been ups and downs. But uh, I'm, I'm excited to talk about the idea of what is success, because there are good days and there are bad days. Me too, but I feel like we can't dive in without actually starting the conversation, explaining how we met, and that leads into your amazing career pivot. Uh, So to begin with, we met at VH1 back in the glory days of the 1990s. I was running the talent development department, and you were working in rights and clearances. And for anyone unfamiliar with television, especially music television, nothing goes on the air without going past (laughs) Carrie Muzzy, because if you couldn't get the rights to it, you couldn't use it. So thank you for the help. But so could you explain what you, and also the job winds up being very relevant in your career now, but tell us a little bit about what you did and how uh, you were really good at it, but I believe it did not feed your soul. Um, It was the business side basically of what I do now. So the, the, what people don't realize is that if you're watching, let's say a clip show, like I love the eighties, those I love, those were huge successes. And you're seeing a montage of clips and videos and photos and all that stuff. Every single thing that you're seeing, a deal had to be negotiated with the owner of the music or the movie studio or the talent in the clip or the photographer. So when you see a montage of like 20 magazine covers, that's actually 20 individual licenses that have to be put in place. And we did meet back in uh, like the halcyon days of 90s VH1, um, which was such a fun place to be in. The job itself was mm. the business side of TV because it involved like music and rights and IP and that kind of thing. And you'll remember this, like the environment was almost like a laboratory. Our mutual friend Danielle always says it was like a teaching hospital for TV, which was the best way to describe MTV networks in the 90s. It really, it was a lot smaller than people thought it was. You were working with everybody. I had the coolest producers in the world who to this day are still friends. It was a hard job though. And as you know, like budgets shrink and demands grow and companies merge, things get harder and harder. Um, So I did the business side of all that stuff for a long time. But, you know, you hit your 30s and you start to think like, wow, I'm 30 now or I'm 35 now. And it's a little bit scary 
because you suddenly realize there's a ticking clock. And if you've been putting off something that you really want to do, and my thing that I always really wanted to do was to be a composer. I mean, I was a composer and my college degree was in classical piano. So I've kind of always been on that path, but there comes a point where like your, your day job is a great thing, especially if you're at least adjacent to what you want to be doing. Like you're in the same arena and that's where I was. But I just reached an age point where I thought, you know, it's I'm reaching that now or never stage. And I, I was climbing up that ladder, but I realized like I'm on the wrong ladder maybe. And I'm not getting any younger. And so I had to start planning for what, like what I, I knew what I wanted to do, but how do you transition to get there? Because it's definitely like, you don't just leap and say, okay, that's it. Today I'm quitting my job. You got to kind of plan ahead and you got to have savings and living in New York is expensive. And then you need a plan. So like I had to think, what am I going to do? Who am I going to pitch? Where do I think that first job is going to come from realistically? And so all that kind of went into finally like giving my notice and switching jobs. When did you know you were ready? Um, I'd say that... You know what? I, the weird thing is I never felt ready. I think for me, it was more of reaching a point of frustration and fear that I mm-hmm. wouldn't do it. I always imagined that like the, the perfect formula would be that I would get so busy with my side stuff that it would overtake my day job and I could drop the day job. I had little blips of busyness with my music stuff, but it was never enough. And it was scary to realize, you know what, that moment I'm waiting for might not look like that when I get there. Like, So what was your big leap? What was it? Was it a Wednesday and you're like, it's do or die? Did you wake up and you knew? Did something happen and fall in your lap? What's mm, your, the origin of the big pivot? uh, I think it was, I was 35, running real close to 36. And just having like a, a frustration with work and something felt disjointed in my life and my happiness. And I had like risen up the ranks at work and it was getting difficult to, to keep enjoying it. It, I think I became discordant with my career path. That's probably the best way to explain it. And as like that friction happened, like now we use the word friction, like it's a friction experience or it's a frictionless experience. I wish I'd had that word back when I made the leap. And I had saved up money for maybe, I could get by for maybe six to nine months, which wasn't enough. It should have been more. But I think I just felt like if I don't do it now, I'm not going to do it. And I will say Mm -hmm. that it was not a quick and seamless thing. I did freelance. Once I quit that job, I did freelance in the same world for probably about two or three years off and on. But at the same time, I was starting to do things like scoring History Channel or Discovery documentaries, stuff like that, where I was actually building up a resume and doing what I wanted to do. And it's like those little building blocks that kind of get you closer. And then it was only around 2009 when I was able to, I didn't have the freelance work. And it dawned on me that, oh, you know what? I suddenly don't need it. I have enough going. So it was like, quit the job in 2006 freelance off and on while doing scoring work, 2006 to 2009. And then the beginning of 2009, realizing I'm actually too busy right now to take on a scoring, uh, to take on a 
freelance job. So it's not a miracle story. It's a story, I think, more of planning and hoping and also just being so blindly optimistic sometimes and thinking that it's possible that it worked. There have been ups and downs during that, um, which has turned me from a spender into a saver. Because I think when you're self-employed, you gotta. Health insurance, rent or mortgage, bills, your car breaks down. Like these, these are all practical things that you don't really think about when you're tilting at windmills. Ooh, let me tell you, the things I think about and notice right away when I launched my own business, first of all, I didn't have an IT department. There was mm-hmm. no one to call to wheel me in a new computer. I mean, I found people to call who charged me (laughs) and I paid out of my own pocket. But back in the MTV days, literally, if you needed a new computer, it got wheeled in. I just remember like these carts with new computers all the time. And then the other shock was I had to start paying for stationary prints. Oh my God. Like the shock of paying for like ink and toner. It's a a fortune. Printer ink is expensive. what? Expensive. Anyway, so I, to your point, it's like, yes, you become aware of, of expenses, profit and loss yeah. statements, return on investment, all of that. But very importantly, I, I want to point out what you did address, that it's that combination. It's mindset, it's strategic, and it's tactical because you have to be optimistic. In fact, that's one of the things I love about working with entrepreneurs and founders. They are inherently optimistic. Nobody launches a business because you think it's going to yeah. fail. You actually launch because you believe in it. It's such an amazing energy to be around. The other thing when you're speaking things into existence is really acting as if it's happening, right? You declared yourself, I'm a composer. I'm not a wannabe composer. I am a composer and it starts to happen. And the other thing you did though was then the real stuff is the planning. I saved money. I started to change the way I think and do. I was prepared. I changed my habits. It's really important. I want to point out the definition number one that I love Pursuing your dreams as a definition of success, like that one, or defining success for myself. What am I doing? I'm pursuing my dreams. Also, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is your full-time thing. And this is something that I Mm -hmm. thought about and kind of came to peace with before I actually made my big leap, which is maybe the best I'll get is that I'm in a job that I pretty much like most of the time that's in the neighborhood of what I do. And I occasionally get to do these side products. And there was a point where like, I was happy with that because at least it was two things going on. And I'd never stopped writing music or anything. But when I was feeling a little bit defeated, very often, I had to tell myself, you know what, at least you're doing a little bit of it. Like you have something you can show for it. And you're working at a cool place with cool people doing, you're in the ballpark. So success doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean that like you win an Oscar next week. It could be that you like what you're doing, even if you're only doing it part-time with an eye towards making it a full-time thing. You know, you have to remember too, there are a number of incredibly quote-unquote successful authors that we love and adore, especially in the fiction space, who are professors who continue to teach. And we never think to say, well, they're not winning. They're not succeeding at writing because they're teaching. A lot has to do with perception. And I think sometimes the creative fields are the only place too, where we think about transition. Like when somebody decides, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. I want to go start a company or create a foundation. No one says, you know, they, they were a failed lawyer. So that's why they had to go get yeah. to be an entrepreneur, but it's only in creative fields that if someone discovers, you know what, I'm a better producer 
than I am an actor or I'm a better producer and executive than I was as a singer songwriter. It's the only time that we ever think that as a negative instead of the idea that's like, wow, that good for you. You found what you're really good at and what you're meant to be doing and where you can make a bigger impact. But there's a whole inner struggle for that person that's trying to make that leap. Like, okay, if I, if I decide to direct instead of act, am I a failed actor? Because you know, that's what everyone is going to say. And you know, this, this comes up for me a lot as I imagine it does for actors where you're at a party with friends or you're, you know, dinner or whatever, and you're meeting new people and they say, what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm a composer. And the first thing they say, oh, what have you done? Like, it's it's half question, half challenge. And, and when I started getting mm. that question, actually out here in LA, because in, in, in New York, when people ask that question, they actually just want to know, like, what do you do so they can find commonality or like, oh, you work at MTV. I have a friend who works there too for that reason. Whereas out here, it's more like proof to me. Like it just feels like a challenge when somebody says, oh, what have you done? Mm. And boy, that's, that's defeat. So how do you handle that? Uh, luckily pre Glee. Um, and I should say that I'm not the composer for Glee. I never was, but there was this magical set of circumstances that happened where a piece of my music ended up in a temporary cut of the pilot, which had a really short delivery schedule and it worked and they continued to use it for me because it just worked with the show. So up until that point, I would say, Oh, I've done some small independent things. I, I would basically skirt the topic. I would try to get away from it. And I would say, Oh, and you know, I, I used to work at uh, VH one and that would successfully allow me to avoid the conversation because there's a whole lot of when people ask oh what have you done boy does it trigger a lot of issues like i feel less than it's sort of in that moment you you really get put down so once glee happened and people would say oh what have you done i finally had something i could come back with that like i was no more or less legitimate in that moment but i could say oh did you watch glee do you remember finn and rachel's first kiss that was me like i could actually say something that was validating and that also kind of gave me the secret joy of like knocking down that person that was trying to knock me down right out of the gate. I think it's something that a lot of creatives experience where you're, you know, small talk, what do you do? And if someone says, Oh, like I'm, I'm a lawyer. That's cool. No one says to the lawyer, Oh, what have you done? It, it's a, it's a very, where have you lost? Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a very loaded, conversation and one that's real uncomfortable. So I, I had to purposely tell myself, this is like the script that you say when people ask so that you can turn the conversation or grow the conversation based on like recent stuff that I've done. I really appreciate your incredible honesty and candor around this because this is the essence of the struggle around defining success because you were in it and, and you hadn't achieved what you define success or what your gremlin was telling you yeah. is success. See, and from where my vantage point is sitting here with my blue Yeti microphone, I was like, but Carrie, you're doing it. You're so freaking successful. You are pursuing your dream, which to me is the essence of defining success versus 
being stuck in something that you don't love and then going around making snide comments to other people to mask your own issues. So I'm going to encourage everyone to go grab a copy of the four agreements. And remember, I think it's agreement number three. Don't take anything personally because it's not about you. It's about them. But that is really, really powerful. I mean, that is where we get stuck and it stops us all the time. I think one of the biggest things, and this happened to me for years, was looking at my bank account, right? And when you have your own business and it's all about cash flow. And they're highs and lows of business. You got the boom years. You got years where it's aren't so boom, or you know the economy falls flat, or the you know for me the television industry just goes crazy, or technology happens. Um, and it's happened enough now that I'm like, you know, my resilience muscle is very very strong because I know we have peaks and valleys, and it's up and down, and I know how to work through it. But in the beginning, I was like, you look at that bank statement every month, and some months you're like, I'm happening, and other months you're like, oh, I'm not so good anymore. And so much of us is attached to these external factors. So I appreciate your saying that. I think it's, I can always tell myself, and I have to have this recalibration conversation with my own brain sometimes, that from the Mm -hmm. outside, or I guess even from the inside, I have achieved success. Because if I look back to what my original definition of it was, all I wanted to do was make a living at writing music for like TV or film. Like that was the goal. It was, it was a very practical, well, difficult to achieve, but practical goal. But then once you reach that goal, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm doing that. You kind of forget that you succeeded. You forget that you reached that goal. And then it becomes, mm. yeah, but now I want like, I want the good work. I want the really good work. Not because I want to be a famous person, but because if I get good work, it will lead to even better work. Like it gets juicier as it goes. And even though I tell myself, yes, I am successful in that I make my living like this and I'm I'm happy, like my life is good. Am I really successful? Because I still feel a little bit like a failure. Like that constantly comes up. I think that is in part what keeps me striving, though. I think that's a universal gremlin. That is, and that's life in these creative fields is all about that internal conversation is finding that balance because it can be, it's a great motivator. Yeah. It kicks you in the butt every morning. Um, but you have to tango with it because it can't stop you from getting up in the morning. Right. Yeah. I'm always like, who the hell do I think I am to be doing this at my age? I launched a podcast <laughs> and I am a mature woman. <laughs> but I much, I much prefer, like I've worked with people that are of that exact same mindset or the same mindset as me where we kind of look at what we're doing sometimes, especially if you're working on a, a film or, or something like that, where you, you look at each other and say, I can't, this is our job. Like, I can't believe that we are getting to do this. I would much rather work with people like that and be around people like that than someone who's like, yeah, I'm good. You know, like I, cocky doesn't work. Oh, that's a really good segue into one of your points that I love that you had actually had mentioned this to me before we got on the call, because it's a practical step and and getting around the notion of perception be likable to work with this is a relationship driven business for any creative and when you're looking to do anything and make a pivot and and some of the ways we define success is the people that you know yep right and that connection be likable tell me explain well i can tell you how likable (laughs) i'm here to tell everyone carrie's enormously likable and generous uh but how does that come up in your own life i'll tell you very specifically how it comes up so if you let's say you're doing a uh TV movie or any kind of film or, or something where there's a director or a producer 
that has spent all this money and created this product and has to deliver this film. The composer is the very last piece in that puzzle. So they've shot everything. It's been edited. It's done. And then a director comes to you and says, you know, now you're going to put music all over this. That's scary. Like, but, but for the director, that's real scary. And they always love music. So it's actually like a fun back and forth sort of process. But I remember the first one or two times I did it, it was a little terrifying because I just felt like I was going to screw it up. And the director has to politely say sometimes that doesn't work. I like it, but that doesn't work. And you ha- the thing that you have to remember is that they're kind of terrified too, because they have to deliver this product and you are the last piece in the puzzle. And conflict at that point is never good. And the thing that I kept going back to was editors that I had met, just like TV and film editors, whether it was back at VH1 or on little like indie projects I had worked with, and the way that they were. Any editor that you ever meet is the coolest, chillest, most unflappable person that cannot be phased by anything. The world's like caving in around them and they're just at their desk like, that's cool, I can change it. You know, can we switch these parts completely and like tear it apart and rebuild? Yeah, that's fine. I can do it. And I realized that modeling yourself after that sort of personality when you work in like um, the post-production world is it's the best way. If you look at that relationship between a director and editor, the way that looks is the best way that a relationship between a director and a composer also looks that it's not personal. And so now every time I start a new job with somebody like right out the gate, and this won't be an email, this has to be like a face-to-face meeting or a a Zoom or something where I say, listen, I'm going to throw a lot of things at you. Some of them are not going to be good. So if it's not working, you have to tell me that it's not working. I will not be sad. I will not be hurt. I won't take it personally, but realize that there's going to be a moment where maybe like we're at a film festival and we're sitting there watching this on the big screen and we want to know with 100% certainty that what we did is good enough. And I don't want to be sitting there cringing, thinking, oh my God, I did a bad cue here. Like, so you have to tell me if it's wrong. And that seems to put them at ease and give them permission to be honest with you and to know that you won't take it personally. You got to like prime the conversation. Okay. I love success as living your truth, which also then includes now speaking your truth. That's fantastic. I want to get to one second, how then you came to scores that right word to compose a ballet, which Casanova, everyone go to YouTube. It is beautiful. So were you watching video? Did you go to Northern England? No, how did it was, that work? Well, I should say that it's not, a, it's actually not, there might be a trailer on um, YouTube, but the, the ballet isn't out. It's only available through right now, like a direct streaming service in the UK. Um, it's a ballet company called Northern Ballet. They're based out of Leeds in uh, England. And the choreographer was, he was doing a full length ballet on the life of Casanova. It's like a two hour thing. And he had found my music, I think through iTunes or maybe So You Think You Can Dance, like one of those places where people had seen or heard it. And he said, oh, I was in London actually visiting friends and kind of like on vacation. And he said, can I meet with you? And so we met and chatted. And I I released this album called The Architect around 2014. And it was recorded in London, like chamber strings and piano. 
And he said, I had this idea to do a ballet about Casanova, and I essentially want it to be a two-hour version of your album, The Architect. So you will score, you will score Venice, like 17th century Venice, and we'll dance to it. Which was like, are you? And then he, and like, that's crazy. I, I should I should asterisk this here with I'm a huge Italophile. Venice and Rome are like my second homes. Um, and he said, have you ever been to Venice? And I was like, I actually just got back from there like two weeks ago and now I'm over here on vacation. We had met in person, but then because he's in England and I was in LA, we did everything over Skype. The weird thing is there was no actual choreography to work to. So we had a scene description where it's like, here's a, the scene's going to be three minutes. Here's what's happening. Here's how we enter it. Here's how we exit it. Go write something. And so I would, and then we'd meet every week over Skype um, where he'd have notes on the music or he'd be like, that's great. Let's move on to the next scene. And um, it toured the UK and it tours with a live orchestra. So it's two hours for live orchestra. Did you completely plot the first time you saw yeah. this? Because I, I didn't, what I didn't see it. What were the emotions of, of watching your work? It was really, it was surreal because for, for the nine months that we were writing it, we, it was an MP3 file. That's all. I would send it to him, like, here's the next scene and the next scene. And so at the end of it, like, I had never seen anything. At one point, he had a diorama built to show me what the sets would look like. Um, and the sets and costumes were done by Christopher Oram, who did sets and costumes for Frozen on Broadway. So the, they were, it was stunning. Like, they recreated Venice on a stage. And then when I went there for the dress, re- for the rehearsal week, I was with the orchestra all week until the actual tech rehearsal the day before opening. So I had never seen anything. So the first thing I see is them, like costumes, makeup, wigs, effects, lights, and an orchestra starts playing my music. I have goosebumps right now just thinking about it. I sobbed so uncontrollably that I didn't know where it came. It's like that kind of hysterical sobbing where you're outside yourself looking in, like, what's wrong with you? What are you, what are you doing? Because there's no other way for, I think, your brain to react when you experience something like that coming to life. That to me, up to that point, it was an MP3 file on my headphones. And suddenly there was a live orchestra playing it with sets and lights, and it was choreographed, and it was two hours long. And I was completely drained, but I have never felt such a high in my life. And then um, at the end of its three-month tour, it played a week in London where it's sold out, like people around the block at Sadler's Wells hoping for cancellation tickets. It was insane. And then uh, Prince Edward was there because he's the sponsor for the ballet company. And they said, oh, you have to go at the, uh, they don't call it intermission, they call it interval. At the interval, uh, mm-hmm. his highness has requested to meet you. I was like, what? And so, and my mom was there. Wait, so it's being a, a royal command, would we call that a, a success-defining moment? Not to mention sobbing uncontrollably <laughs> when you hear your work brought to life with, you know, sets, costumes, makeup, wig, and full orchestra. Yeah, it was it was definitely a moment. Um, I was I was kind of it was so mm. surreal that I was maybe not completely present. I was a little floaty and I was like, okay, I'll meet the prince and and he was super nice and and I was just staring like we were chatting and I was staring at him thinking like you're Queen Elizabeth's son. Like you're Harry and Will's uncle. Like, 
it was so bizarre. And my mom was there and uh, my partner, Andrew, they were there. And so they were off on the side, like taking pictures and being all excited. And that was definitely like a moment where I thought, okay, if I, if I were to die right now, we could call this success. I distinctly had that thought, like you, you have to put this as a, a landmark on your timeline as something you can look to as evidence that you didn't fail. Mm. So do you go back to that sometimes when you're stuck in the messy middle? Yeah. Uh, the actual, I mean, just to hold on to that feeling. Yeah. It's still, I listen to the, like the live recording and it still brings back the buzz and it's a really good reboot. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if I'm feeling down because you know, when you're self-employed and this is true, no, no matter what your self-employment is, your job is to self motivate. You only work like what you find. I had a producer friend who once said, oh, you're self-employed, so now you only eat what you kill. And I was like, oh my God, that's so true. It's, it's an interesting way to look at it, right? You only eat what you can kill. Okay, it's a little- Perhaps things <laughs> that I can grow and nurture. Well, there, there, there's and... that. I would say he was a little bit of an, an aggressive personality. I'm thinking multiple income streams. So I'm thinking that, you know, perennials and regenerate, you know, it's like, if we're going to stretch that metaphor. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, okay. So he's a hunter. I am perhaps a gatherer <laughs> and a gardener. I, I am too. So I was a little put <laughs> off by the, the metaphor, but it was a really stark cold water in the face. Well, it's on you. Yeah. Like, you know what? It's Monday. And if you choose to stay in bed all day, you can. Nobody's going to tell you to do anything, but you have to self-motivate. And that can be really challenging sometimes. Oh, it sure can. But it can be really challenging to motivate to go into, you know, work at Dunder Mifflin. And you have to think too, the eye opener, when this actually gets explained to you, it's like, here's my salary. This is what, you know, I go to this company and I get paid to do this. This is what I pay me. And then if you go look to see what they're valued at. Yeah. <laughs> and understanding the cost benefit analysis is not in your right. favor. Right. And so it, it, not to go way down into this rabbit hole, but just to put a cap on it, it is kind of a false safety net. This idea, like I get my steady paycheck. Yeah. Well, yeah until maybe you get laid off one day. I, one day I was going to say that to me going back is one of the greatest gifts ever. It's again, another muscle you build, the more, the more you get fired the easier it gets, but it's really important that it does happen to you. It's like, it's good to be on a losing team once in a while to understand your resolve and, and why you're there in the first place. Same thing. And especially it, the, the entertainment media industrial complex, the higher you go, it is understood that there's high turnover. And, and sometimes, I mean, I've always heard people say that, you know, you're negotiating your exit deal kind of at the same time you're negotiating your deal in the first place. Yeah. I feel like the higher up you go and in TV or, or any other world, uh, it becomes more dangerous because yeah. it's just seems, especially once you're out of there, like it'd be harder to find a job in the same arena. Well, it again goes back to defining success and why you're, you know, what actually your goal is. So, um, so everybody's different. I mean, I do understand and, and, and people have expenses and why they want to do something. But my point is, is I'm, I'm a card carrying believer in bet on yourself. And that the mindset is to find people that you want to work with, which is a different way of looking at instead of working yeah. for even if you're an employee, think about like, what is that relationship and what you're bringing to it? But ideally you have multiple things going on and you're collaborating with people and you're working with businesses and other people for fun. 
Well, two things. One, I want to find out you're a big Susie. Yes. Horowitz. So how does how does Susie, who I haven't talked about in a while, so I love this. How does Susie factor in to the defining success conversation? The first thing I would say is that Susie Orman and reading her books got me out of debt. Doing what Susie Orman does. The courage to be rich. That right alone, her notion of the courage to be rich, because it really it's the courage to save and not keep up with the Joneses. But I thought that she was genius. She did a that. book a billion years ago that I read that was something like um, finances for 20-somethings or 30-somethings. It was it was really plain speak. And, I, and it's something that you don't learn. So yeah, it, number one, applying her concepts really got me out of debt. Credit card debt, the whole shebang. And the endless cycle of feeling like defeated by money. But she, okay, so she has this fantastic concept that I, when composers will ask me, which is also weird, if, if I get like an email from another composer saying like, I found your music and I like your stuff and what, what advice can you give? Which is very strange for me because I'm usually the one asking other people for advice, but I like practical advice. I don't like, if I ask advice, I don't like someone saying, well, you just got to go out there and try. Like, no, I... Not no. helpful. <laughs> I, that's the story of my life. In fact, Carrie, thank you so much for saying that. It is one of the prime motivators for this podcast because my entire life, people have told me what I needed to do. You need to go do this. But no one was telling me how to do it. And it's so essential that those two things go together. And by the way, to your question about advice, I'm just going to refer everyone back to Nora Ali's episode of Camera Ready and Able. We talked about access. And that was one of her primary takeaways was explaining how to ask for advice and be specific because people do want to help you. But when you ask that broad question, do you have any tips for me? No, not really. Yeah. <laughs> but if you could get something specific, like how did you make that first cold call? How much money do you recommend I have in the bank? If you can tap into something specific, I can answer your question. And I am delighted to help you. You, you nailed it. It's about um, concrete information. And Susie Ormont, she does this thing, if you ever watched her old TV show, where she would tell people, somebody would call and say, Susie, I make $100,000 a year and I'm broke and I'm in credit card debt and I don't know where it's going. And she walks through their finances. And the first thing she says is, how much do you spend a day on lattes? $8. How much do you spend a day on lunch? $10. Okay, so there is $18 a day. So she said, you're spending $18 a day times five days a week. You're spending $90 on lunch and coffee times 52 weeks a year. You're spending $4,680 on lattes and lunch. Have your coffee at home. Make your lunch at home. I've just saved you $4,680. Now let's move on to the gym membership that you never use. That's $200 a month. I've just saved you 24. And she keeps a list as she goes. And the person is always dumbfounded, like, oh, my God, it just comes and goes so fast. I don't see it. What I took away from that for my own career is the idea of aggregates. If you're not setting goals, you're not going to realize that you've succeeded or failed. The way this looks for a composer. So if somebody says to me, like, what's a practical thing that I can do? I want to start making money as a composer, not I want to be famous. I want to be Hans Zimmer. Like, I, I want to score an Avengers movie. Like, I want to make money with music. The first thing I will tell them is production music libraries are the best in in the world because you don't have to live in L.A. or New York to, to work with them. You write music and you submit them and then they place them in things. And that begins to generate income and royalties and perennial royalties, especially in basic cable land where stuff, you know, airs forever and syndicates. And I tell them, if you write one piece of music 
each week, just one two minute like dramatic cue a week, which is not hard to do. At the end of one year, you will have 52 pieces of music. You will have a library of 52 things that you could give to a music library that can then exploit that for you while you're working on your next stuff. Now, give yourself a better challenge and each one, like maybe do two or three pieces a week. If you do two a week, and I mean, in theory, you should really be able to do one a day once you're at a certain level of proficiency. You do two a week times 52 is 104. Am I getting that right? Yeah, 104 Mm -hmm. pieces of music that you've written. And then at the end of one year, like on New Year's Day, you can say, I wrote 104 pieces of music last year. And then you put those out into the world through a production music library, and they begin to gather fees and generate royalties. And it becomes like a cycle, like this machine. And then once you have income coming in from that, you can do things like, okay, I've got a little breathing room now between my day job and that income. I want to write an album. I want to be like a classical composer. So I'm going to write a classical album and I'm going to release it and I own all the rights to it. So I'm, you know, put a Spotify, iTunes, Apple music and all that. And it was actually through iTunes that people originally found my work. And this was totally a fake it till you make it thing because I got my stuff on there in 2006 before any independent people were on there at all. And I'm such an odd niche that I write basically film scores, even if there's no movie attached to it, it's like score material that people who were browsing for film scores, if they're like people who like this also like this and my stuff came up and I started getting contacted by producers or directors who assumed that because my music was in the virtual store on the virtual shelf next to the big guys that I must be legit. And so I was getting emails or messages on my machine from like famous people asking me, Oh, you know, I want to talk to you about scoring this, this project. And I was completely dumbfounded. Like I didn't know how to be or how to act because they thought that I was a thing. I wasn't a thing. And you are a thing. I was not a thing. thing. I'm well, I no, I totally get, I I totally get you. And I think that this happens at every level. No. Okay. I'm going to (laughs) challenge you on this one, Carrie Mussey. I'm going to coach you right here. In the moment, in the moment I thought, wait, they think I'm a thing. That's your gremlin yes. talking, yes. by the way, right? That's your subconscious. That's that's you being you. That's 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 completely on you because they liked what they heard. And by the way, just on a practical note, another th- another. Not only did they like what they heard, they liked what they saw. So I want to take a moment to also understand: you put your work out there professionally. You understood what the standards yeah. are. It wasn't slapdash. It wasn't sloppy. It you know you had yeah. artwork. You had nice fonts, but anyway, I mean, it was packaged correctly. You understood. So that's just another tip for everyone. As you're, you're launching, you're trying to figure this out is understand how do you want to show up in the marketplace to look like you belong in the marketplace? You belonged. So they resonated because they admired your work. Yes. Me, me, me of yeah. now understands that and can accept that. But me, me of then was like, like, oh, but then you hear other people like famous bands and artists that talk about how they don't understand it, but it's that that fake it till you make it idea. Because I, you know what I love actually is Amy Cuddy, who has the, one of the most famous TED talks of all time is the power pose. But I recommend, I recommend this all the time that everyone watch it because the power pose is only the first few minutes. The, the whole 17 minutes are extraordinary. And, and her message there is fake it until you believe it, Carrie. And that is the message for you. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, wow. Yeah. Or at least until you 
you're able to convincingly pretend that you believe it. See, this is this is where when you're in a creative field, no, when you. <laughs> <laughs> I am just so not going to let you get away with that. There's just no what way. What this comes down to for anyone who's in any <laughs> creative thing is that I feel like all of us have some inner thing saying you're not quite good enough, no matter what your creative yeah, field. That's yeah. your It seems to be a universal thing. Um, I've, it thanks is to a great thing. therapist, actually, I've been able to kind of defeat that voice and recognize when I just have to ignore it and say, yes, I can do this job. I can do that really well. Like, when it's fear talking versus a genuine concern. Yes. You know, and one of the best ways to tell is, is do I feel an anvil on my chest? So that's dread versus, um, you know, flutters and the things that are fear. And so the fear energy you can actually work with. Those are things that you do want to listen. Like if you feel like absolute dread, like the anvil, that's something else to listen to. One of my favorite books I recommend to everyone. It's exactly what you're talking about. It's called Taming Your Gremlin. Your gremlin never goes away by the fabulous Rick Carson. He's the OG of getting the F out of your own way. I think the book came out in the 1980s. It's a really, really beautiful work and it's really rooted in Eastern philosophy and it's a very gentle concept and really kind of sweet line drawings. I love it. I recommend to everyone because his whole idea is the gremlin never goes away. It's about taming the gremlin. It's about having conversations with your gremlin. But the difference between anybody who is successful and anyone who doesn't perceive themselves as successful is quote unquote successful people work through the gremlin. Yeah. That's it. For me, it boiled down to that old shtick of um, feel the fear and do it anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. Brene Brown, my goddess, says to be brave and scared at the same time. Yes. All day, every day. And just they, do it. they can mm-hmm. coexist. I eventually learned, like, if I would get an, an offer to uh, score something or to work on a project, there, there was two kinds of of no reactions I would have. One would be a legitimate no, like, you know what? I'm not your guy that can do that. That's just, that's Mm -hmm. not my thing. And I'm the wrong guy for that project. And the other one is more of like an impulsive no, because I'm scared. And once you realize Mm -hmm. that there's, there's two things, you can start to differentiate between the two. So if it was no, I'm scared, I force myself to automatically say, yes, I'd love to take that on and then figure figure it out later because I know I can do it. But I was going to challenge is often the most important thing we do is if, if that's that scary, it means you should go do it. Yeah. Because that's the breakthrough. That's your growth. And some people would say growth is success yeah. as opposed to being stagnant. Uh, being asked to write a two hour ballet for full orchestra in seven months was a terrifying thing. But I thought, you know what? Like, I'm not stupid. I could, I could. <laughs> Sure, I can do okay, it. Okay, <laughs> I love this self-talk. Right. Okay, so what are some of the other things that you say? I love, I'm not stupid. I think I can do this. I, right on. I sometimes think like, okay, well, you know so-and-so. I'm at least better than him. <laughs> you, you, you do compare yourself a lot to other people. But you know what? It, the, I think we artificially inflate some of these things in our heads to be scarier than they are. When the fact is that, okay, I write music and I can write music for orchestras. I've always done it. I went to college for it and it's not hard. It's something that I do. So now I've just been asked to do it and okay, I'm going to say yes, because that's what I do. I, I did this indie film years ago and I'm not going to say the name of it because it was actually really, really bad, but I got a copy of the poster and my name was on the poster, like the film poster. And I took it into my therapist and I showed it to him and I was like, this is really weird because I was still working in the t- at the time at MTV Networks 
but this was like a good get for me because it was a thing and my name was on a poster. Um, and I said, I'm so, God, I'm so lucky. And he shot me this look and he said, wait, let me, let me rephrase this for you. You've been writing music since you were like 10. You went to college and got your degree in it. You've been demoing for stuff left and right, your adult life. You're doing all this stuff. You're putting yourself out there. You landed a gig. You scored this film. And that's luck. And I, boy, was that like cold water in the face. Because, Boom, yeah, it was go. like a, it was a, it was a hard slap. Because it made me have to say. It was a slap? Uh, in, in a, in a like share moonstruck, get a hold of yourself slap. Oh, Cause to me, that's a real hug. That's like, that was a big hug and a kiss. No, I took it as it, to I, it. it shut me down because <sighs> I realized, Oh, wait a second. This is what it's going to be like every time. And I have to like, mm. yeah, it's one of those personal growth uh, moments of clarity thing where, you know what, you're, you're right. And I have to be okay with saying I did this. And I like it, and it is good. It wasn't. I mean, my music was good. The movie wow. was horrible. It was, it was bad. <laughs> but like in the moment, it wasn't. It was really good, and it was a very strange thing having to acknowledge. Like, you know what? You're right. Thank you. I, I did this. I'm proud of myself for doing that. It was there not. You go. Maybe also what you're trying to say is that you're blessed and that you were grateful, but that's different than being lucky. You earned yeah. it. Yeah. You can be grateful and acknowledge. So what, I, what I've taken to saying instead of lucky is fortunate because you, you got like, if you work a lifetime to get somewhere and you finally get there, it's not luck. And maybe that's one of the things that self-employed creatives need to remind ourselves of is that sometimes the work pays off and that's not a lotto ticket. That's an evolution. Mm. Carrie, you are such a gift. I'm going to have to end it there. I could go on for days talking about this, but thank you so much. This was really an incredible conversation. J'adore you. And thank you for listening to Camera Ready and Able. Your support and feedback means the world to me. As always, please be sure to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. And please, please, please share with your friends. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you.